0: I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. You're my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. Uphold me according to your promise, that I may live. And let me not be put to shame in my hope. Hold me up, that I may be safe, and have regard for your statutes continually. You spurn all who go astray from your statutes, for their cunning is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I'm afraid of your judgments. Those are verses 113 through 120 of Psalm 119, verses 97 to 120 of which are the psalm appointed for today, Wednesday, March the 23rd, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We're continuing our look at the uh, prophecies of Jeremiah. Today we're in the 8th chapter Um, verse 18 and continuing through chapter 9 verse 6 the gospel today we're continuing in the gospel of john chapter 8 verses 12 to 20 and then in the epistle to the church at rome the fifth chapter verses 1 to 11 so (laughs) remember yesterday that that Jeremiah was told to, to tell the people that there would be essentially nothing good left, that the devastation was going to be so complete that there would be nothing worth celebrating, nothing worth um, taking any pleasure in in the land because God was going to lay it waste. <clears throat> and so now we hear um, the Lord speaking again. My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick. Behold, the cry of the daughter of my people from the length and breadth of the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their foreign idols? The harvest is past. The summer is ended. and We are not saved. For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn and dismay has taken hold of me. The Lord loves his people. And they have rejected him. And, and what he sees when he sees them is what they might have been. And that applies to us as well. What might have been, when he looks at the world and says, what might have been had not sin entered the world. And then what might have been had sin not been fruitful and multiplied. And so that's what he sees. He sees what would have been. Had we not gone astray, had we been faithful to him as he was faithful to us, had we loved him as much as he loves us and as, and as completely as he loves us. And and here, it, it, it's heartbreaking. It has to be. If you created something, the world, and then if you called and created a people and all of it went to pieces because we can't be faithful and we can't obey the commandments that he's given us, we don't recognize him as good, and we don't recognize him as great. If we, the way we don't recognize him as good is when we don't obey his commandments, when we don't live our lives the way he intends for us to live and is made plain and is making plain through the power of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. When we reject his commandments, we consider him to not be good. We consider ourselves to be gods like him, knowing good and evil, and we make choices about good and evil all the time. And And sometimes we call evil good, even in our own lives. We do that when we gossip, when we, you know, all the things that we do, all the sins of our lives, those things are all evil, and yet we treat them as though they're goods, Because we don't abhor them. We don't run away from them. So we consider God's law not to be good whenever we choose to sin. And then we consider him not to be great when we don't understand there be consequences for that sin. He says, Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes were a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place that I might leave my people and go away from them like Elijah tried to do. Remember, he left his servant behind and he went out into the wilderness to get away from the people he had had enough. God says, I I feel that way right now. For they are all adulterers, a company of treacherous men. They bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land. For they proceed from evil and evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone beware of his neighbor and put no trust in any brother. For every brother is a deceiver, and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. It's an awful situation, but I feel like sometimes that we're in exactly that same kind of situation today in America. Everything has become about politics and which team wins and which team loses. And it's about slandering other people, and it's, about, um, it's never about thinking the best of anybody. And there's two distinct teams. And within those teams, there are factions as well. And so there's constant treachery, it seems, all the time. And and the American people have finally said, we don't even know who to trust anymore. We don't know who to believe anymore. And I'm hoping that people will wake up and say, we're sick of this. We need something transcendent to base our lives on. And that's the problem is what they what we've done is we've allowed ourselves to be, tricked and pulled into the immediacy of politics rather than the transcendence of the life that we're intended to live. We're, we're intended to rise above all of those things, and we need, as Christians, to have good discernment on all things as well, and so we'll know how to navigate through these polarizing times in a way where we don't become part of that same problem, Everyone deceives his neighbor and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity. Heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit, they refuse to know me, declares the Lord. And it's, it, that's, if I had to say anything, what we have in, in America today, and, and most of the world, in fact, or in the Western world at least, has to do with a spiritual problem. We have turned away from him and turned to All these other things, and we've come to believe that that politics or men and women, whatever it is, can save us through their policies, but that requires a wisdom that's far greater than anybody possesses. There's only one who can navigate us through all these things and bring us safely through to the other side, and that's the Lord. And so we can't put our trust in princes and rulers and all that. We have to trust in him in all things, and we have to be transcendent. It doesn't mean that we're not fighting the fight day to day for a variety of issues, but it does mean that we understand that those things are not ultimate, and God is sovereign over all things. In the gospel lesson today, we skip the first, at least for the time being, we skip the first 11 verses of the gospel of John. Those 11 verses are the story of the woman caught in adultery, and that particular story within John's gospel is not in the earliest manuscripts. It only appears uh, like a couple of centuries later, and, and people decided, though this is part of John's teaching." And so they stuck it in here. So now we're going to we skip over that today, though, and we're going to start with this. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And that's kind of the point that I've been trying to get at is, is that that we need to stay in the light. All those other places, all the political sides in America, at least, and it looks like it's this way everywhere, both political sides, all the political sides— Their interest is not casting light on all things. It's only interest is is in casting light on the other side. And Jesus just says, I'm the light of the world. I'm not asking you to do anything other than pick a side. And that's the side of light or the side of darkness. And so Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Means This is how you will navigate through the, the the. the darkness that is this world. We're not aware that it's darkness. It's it's sort of like the Matrix movie, but we're not aware of the darkness because it's all we know. And so Jesus invites us to walk in his light. Cuz he's very clear. If you if you the the opposite of what he said would be true, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light, light of life. If he is the only if he is the light of the world, then to not walk in him is to choose to walk in darkness. And and so certain things would be expected from those who walk in darkness. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. In other words, we're going to need a few more witnesses to tell us about you before we're willing to to believe any of that. And so we can dismiss you because it's just your testimony about yourself. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true because I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. And, and remember, that was the argument that they were having the day before, was is that they, they knew where he came from. They knew that he came from Galilee, and nothing good can come from Galilee. The problem is, it's not where he came from. In an earthly sense, he was born in Bethlehem which is exactly where Messiah was supposed to be born. But Jesus is referring more than that, more than just the the accident of his physical birthplace. And it wasn't an accident, and I know that. It's not a coincidence. It was planned by God. That whole census thing that required them, this pregnant young woman and her husband, to travel to Bethlehem from their home up in Nazareth, required a sacrifice on their part, and it probably seemed like the biggest inconvenience in the world, but God needed them in order to fulfill the prophecies about the Messianic king. He had to move them to Bethlehem, and he used this edict from Caesar Augustus that all had to go back to the ancestral homelands in order to be enrolled in the census in order to accomplish the purposes that he had set in place thousands of years before in the prophetic word. He says, you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. That's the second time here he said that his testimony is true and his judgment is true. And for it's not I who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it's written that the testimony of two people is true. I'm the one who bears witness about myself and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And their question, which which makes sense because they're still not interpreting this the, the way Jesus intends it, even though they had to have kind of understood that that's what he was getting at. They said to him, therefore, where's your father? And Jesus says, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And the, how does the father bear witness to the son? I mean, he bore witness to the son at his baptism, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He bore witness to the son at the um, transfiguration. This is my son. Listen to him. So he bears witness in those ways. But but most generically and most often, he bears witness to people through the power of the Holy Spirit. But the word bears witness to him as well is what Jesus is saying, is, is that the Father has multiple ways of bearing witness to him. But he says, my testimony is not just my testimony. It, it's the testimony of the one true God as well. And, and he says, you, you don't know me, and you don't know my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father. I am making him known, and we are one and the same. We're indistinguishable from one another in, in that we are truth as well. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him for his hour had not yet come. That's the third time John has used that turn of phrase to say his hour had not yet come. And, and all it is is a way of saying um, they would have arrested them then, but the father wouldn't allow it because there was other things that had to happen before that time came. In the same way, God had to tell Abraham, your your descendants are going to be slaves in Egypt for about 400 years because the sin of the Amorites has not yet filled the land. And so there's a patience in God because he has a plan and he knows exactly how it's going to unfold and exactly when it's going to unfold. And we can rest then in his sovereignty. In Paul, in this letter to the Romans, he's continuing to make the case that all ascend and fall short of the glory of God. It's only by faith that we have salvation. He says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we are at peace, and in a Jewish sense, that meant something, that you would give a peace offering because you were celebrating the peace between you and God that you experienced in every single way, spiritually and emotionally and otherwise. And so when Paul says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, that means the wall of enmity, because of our sins that separated us from a holy God has been dealt with. And so now we're not at war with him and he's not at war with us through him. We've also obtained access by faith into this grace, which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, it's an important thing where you say, and we've obtained access by faith into this grace. We didn't obtain access by works into that grace because it's not grace if we worked to receive it. Then it's our wages. But Paul says, no, I'd rather stand in grace than get what I deserve. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And so He's He's basically saying to them the same thing I said to you, and that is is that God is we're resting in God's sovereignty. Because the suffering, we, we know that the suffering produces endurance. But we've got to believe in, in God's plan in order to embrace that idea. To believe that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, we have to believe in the sovereignty of God. We have to believe that all these things are working together for good, for all those who uh, are in Christ Jesus and called to his purpose. We know that whatever man or Satan intends for evil, God has an ability to make it a good thing. And so, but, it, but it's a belief in the sovereignty of God, but also that he is both a great and good God. In other words, that he, that he has the power to accomplish whatever he purposes, and that whatever he purposes is good. It's a hard thing to believe sometimes. When, when things keep going you know, in the same direction for a long period of time, and there never seems to be an end to something, then, then it's hard to see that. And it's hard sometimes to awaken people to being able to see that in, our, in their lives. And sometimes it takes a while for us to see, oh, wait a minute. In retrospect, all that stuff was good. All the things that were so painful to me at the time actually worked together in this beautiful way that I could never possibly have imagined at the time. He said, for while we're still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly one will scarcely die for a righteous person though perhaps for a good person one might even dare to die but god shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners god died for christ died for us in other words it, it goes back to the cross when jesus prays for those who are killing him you know father forgive them for they know not what they do and he sees us and he takes pity on us because he realizes that that we are ignorant and without his spirit we can't grope our way to him we can attempt to but we can't get all the way there. And so he takes pity on us because sin has blinded us to a reality beyond reality. It's blinded us to the truth. It's blinded us to that unseen reality that is the kingdom of God. He says, Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And it's an important concept to, to imagine. You know, Sometimes after you've been a Christian for a while, you lose sight of the fact that you had to be reconciled to God. And, and then we lose sight of that we need to continue to be <laughs> at peace with God, and in a reconciled relationship with Him. And, and that includes worship. It also includes obedience. It includes all kinds of things, but mostly it, accepts, it, it, it calls for the acceptance of Him as the only great and only good being in the, in the entire universe. He's the only one who is truly great and truly good, and compared to Him, nothing else is. And then what we have to recognize is because of those two things, we should follow his commandments. We should walk in his ways. And if we do that, we're choosing to walk in the light. And we're choosing to understand the world around us because we're walking in light while the world is walking in darkness.